Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of the book of Luke. Luke 24, we're going to read verses 13 down to verse 35. Luke 24, starting verse 13, this is the same day as the resurrection. So, several hours after Jesus has risen, it's still Sunday, we come across a different scene. So, previously we read about the disciples talking about what happened, the women came and told them the tomb was empty, and then what happens? So, this story tells us what happens after the resurrection. And as a result, gives us a guide for how we should respond now that we believe that Jesus is risen. So verse 13 says, Now behold, two of them, thus disciples, were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. So they were all together in Jerusalem. They talked about the resurrection or the empty tomb. They didn't know the resurrection. Now they're walking back home seven miles, which is about a three-hour walk. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? So you see, they're sad. They knew the tomb was empty, but they're still sad. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. It's funny because when you hear that, it sounds like good news, doesn't it? They're sad. They're depressed while they're telling this. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, they took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he's known to them in the breaking of bread. Now that Jesus is risen, now what? Sometimes we send so much emphasis that Jesus is alive, that he's risen. So what are we supposed to do with that? 
What do you do after you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What's life supposed to look like with an empty tomb? That's what this story is about. Sometimes we just stop at Easter and say, okay, now we believe Jesus is risen. But the Bible doesn't stop there. Notice there's a whole chapter after this saying, here's how you should respond. Here's what Christianity looks like. These disciples were discouraged. They knew all the facts that we know. But they were discouraged. They were sad. They were without Jesus. So what do we see here? How do you see Jesus? That's what everybody wants, right? That's what they were sad. They didn't see Jesus. So we're going to see three things in this passage. Jesus walks. The word reveals. And we respond. Jesus walks, the word reveals, and we respond. It's how we live after the resurrection. So the first thing we see, Jesus walks. Now that doesn't sound like much, does it? What was Jesus doing walking down this road? You know he's the risen king of the universe. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated death. He's put this... Now he's by himself walking down this road. These disciples were not looking for Jesus. Look at the contrast here. What were they doing? They've been told that their leader, the tomb is empty. Now, what would be the natural response for a good follower? Go to the tomb and check? Go look for him? What are they doing? They're leaving the city. It's a three-hour walk. They're just gone. They're like, well... Nothing to do here. We'll just go home. We're leaving town. Jesus is risen or is missing, and they're going home. Not very good disciples, are they? They've given up. In other words, they say that we thought he was going to redeem Israel, but I guess not. So we're just going to go home and continue as before we met him. The contrast here is that they're not looking for Jesus, despite having followed him for, for a long time, being there with him in the end. They've given up. But look what else we see. Jesus is looking for them. They've given up on Jesus. And so Jesus goes and finds them. He says, all my disciples are together except for these two. They're out of town. So he goes down the road and he meets them as they leave. They weren't looking for Jesus, but he was looking for them. Jesus walks with them. Why? Because if he didn't show up, they never would have seen him. They were gone. This is a lesson for us. How do you find Jesus? First, Jesus finds you. If you think it's up to you to find Jesus, you're going to give up when you can't. You're going to go home. You're going to say, this is... We thought it was the answer, but it wasn't. We thought if we did these things, it would work, but it didn't. So there's nothing left to do. But we see here is that that's okay. Jesus is going to come looking for you. Even if you are a terrible disciple. Even if you've heard all the good stories and all the truth and still don't believe and are depressed about how much you don't believe, Jesus still comes looking for them. See, this is Jesus' whole ministry. This goes back to the very beginning. Remember the passage we read about the serpent? Do you know how that came about? Adam and Eve, given everything, rebel. 
realize that they've sinned, and they hide. Now, God could have said, I'll give you what you want. You don't want to see me? Fine. But what happens in the story? God comes looking for Adam and Eve. He says, where are you? Why did God do that? Because Adam and Eve needed God, but were hiding from him. These disciples needed Jesus, but were running away from him. So God, through Jesus, in Jesus, meets them. They can't avoid him, can he? Their lack of faith didn't stop Jesus from going to look for them. That's what the incarnation is. It's God coming out of heaven, born of a virgin, made into a man, so that he could find us. Jesus has already said in this book that he has come to seek and to save those lost. Notice the seek part. We all need to be saved, but first he has to come find us. Resurrection life means Jesus comes looking for you first. That means you can relax a little bit. It's not up to you. You don't have to be the one that makes the first step. God makes the first step to us. God comes down and meets just these two people by themselves. You notice how Jesus works? He doesn't announce that he's back from the dead to rule the world in front of a crowd. Like what you would expect, right? A king, when he comes back from victory, has a parade. What does Jesus do? He goes and finds two people by themselves walking down the road and talks to them. That's not how a king should act, but aren't you glad that's how he does act? Because, you know, none of us are very important. If a king came to America, he wouldn't visit any of us. Has the president ever come to look for you? Has the governor? Has the mayor? Has anyone important come look for you personally? No, and they're not going to. I hate to break it to you, but important people don't care about us. So when Jesus shows up to look for us, that's special. The king comes to individuals face to face, like he does here. And then he doesn't just meet them. Look how he deals with them. He works with them. He doesn't show up and say, hey, where are you going? Turn around and go back. We're about to have a meeting. I'm meeting the disciples in Jerusalem. Why are you out here? What does he do? First of all, they can't see him. They don't know who he is. And he starts asking questions. Their eyes were restrained. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is you're having? And are sad. And they say, don't you know anything? Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? And Jesus, who they're talking about, says, what things? What, what are you talking about? What's happened? Has someone died? Tell me about it. Why does Jesus do this? He's not there to get them in trouble for being bad disciples. What's he there to do? He's there to make them disciples. He's there to draw them to himself. And so he's drawing answers. He's, he's getting them to confront what they believe. He's saying, you tell me what's wrong. Tell me in your own words what the problem is. Now, isn't that patience? Jesus knew everything. He knew what happened in Jerusalem for sure, and he knew what was wrong with them, but he says, you tell me what's wrong. Giving us a model that when you want to deal with people, ask them questions first. You don't just walk up to them and tell them where they're wrong. Jesus doesn't do it. We shouldn't do it. Because this is the kind of king we serve. He wants to hear what we have to say. Now, you notice what they say. It's nothing 
good. They're terrible representatives, but Christ still wants to hear it because he cares about them. And if you care about somebody, you listen to them. You ask questions and you listen to the answers. And so Jesus does that. Jesus draws out the answers despite their failures. He still lets them talk. You see, sometimes we feel like unless we have the right answers, we can't talk. Unless we get the right response, we need to be quiet. But that is not what's happening here. What's important here is that there's an interaction between the disciples and Jesus. Not that they get the right answers, because they don't. We base so much of our Christianity and our faith on how we respond, on what we do and what we know. Eugene Peterson says, the mistake we so often make is thinking God's interest and care for us waxes and wanes according to our spiritual temperature. That's opposite of what's happening. These disciples are at their lowest point, and that's when Jesus comes to them. And if he comes to them, when they know all the truth, they've seen Jesus, they've followed him, and now they've given up, don't you think he'll come to you when you're not in the right place? When you don't believe, when you're not praying and reading your Bible and going to church and all of those things, he'll do the same thing. He'll show up, he'll be there, and he'll interact. The Savior we serve is much better than us. He doesn't react to us. He draws us. He asks us questions. He confronts us in a way that brings us to him. He listens to us. You realize that every time you pray, God listens, no matter what you say? If you're a believer, you can say the dumbest thing to God, and he just listens. We don't treat each other that way. Someone starts saying something dumb enough, we're like, I don't have time for this. But Jesus didn't. This is why we serve Jesus, because this shows us, in a very practical example, exactly how he deals with his disciples at their worst. But it's interesting. So he walks with them. But when he goes to confront them, he doesn't just say, look, it's me, which would have been the easiest way, right? The easiest way to deal with their problem is to say, I'm Jesus. I'm alive. What's your problem? But he doesn't. In fact, it says that their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. They couldn't see Jesus. Why is that important? Because we're in the exact same spot. You can't see Jesus, can you? So if the answer to lack of faith was for Jesus to show up in front of you so you could see him, then we're all out of luck. We've got nothing. And for 2,000 years, no one could follow Christ. So what Jesus does here is he prepares a scenario for us. This historical event was for us. They didn't need this whole process, but we do. And so Jesus doesn't let them see who he is and instead confronts them with what? The scriptures. You want to see Jesus? Look to the word. The word reveals the living person of Jesus. He's in heaven. We're not going to see him in the flesh until after we get there or he comes back to get us. So how do we see him now? How do we follow what we can't see? The word reveals. And Jesus gives us the model here. 
He's hidden to them in flesh so that he can be revealed to them in the word. He says, I'll show you Jesus. Look at the Bible. So how do we see Jesus here? How did they see Jesus without seeing him? Jesus gives them three steps. He says, first of all, O foolish ones, a slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? What's happened before this? They've already read the Bible. You see how this conversation wouldn't work unless they knew what the Bible said? So Jesus went to them and said, you know what the Bible says. Now let's move forward. So if you don't read the Bible, if you don't know what's in the Bible, you cannot see Jesus. Because here's something we know but don't think about. Jesus cannot be found anywhere else except in Scripture. You don't know anything about Jesus that you didn't learn from the Bible. You know nothing about Jesus Christ that was not revealed to you only in Scripture. So you take away the Bible, you take away Jesus. You don't know that he was born of a virgin. You don't know that he did miracles. You don't know that he loved people, that he was kind. You don't know any of that unless you first read the Bible. So if you want to see Jesus, you have to read Scripture. And that's what Jesus says to them. He said, you've read it. You've got the material. You've got the source. But you don't know. So it's not just reading, is it? Because many of us have read a lot of the Bible. And we know a lot of people who've read the Bible, and they don't know Jesus. They know the story of Jesus. They know the content. They've read it. They've heard it. But they still don't see him. So Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, that's the whole Bible, by the way, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the prophets are all the people that followed that. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded, explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus takes them through a quick how to study the Bible class. Now that word expound there is the word we get for the word uh, hermeneutics, if you ever heard that word. Hermeneutics is the study of the Bible. How do you study the Bible? It's like the official name for it. It comes from the Greek word right here. It means when you read the Bible, have you noticed that people don't always get the same thing out of it? And it's a little troublesome why there are you know, 500 different denominations and Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and Catholics and Protestants, Baptists and Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics. We all have the same Bible. We're all reading the same Bible, right? You know, Mormons use the King James Version. What's going on? They did the same thing that these two disciples did. They read it, but they didn't know how to read it. So Jesus says, you read it, but you didn't know how to read it. So he explained how to read the Bible. You've got to read it, but you have to read it the right way. How do you interpret the Bible? How do you understand what it says? Here's the key. Jesus. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the scriptures. He made it simple for us. When you read the Bible, look for Jesus. And he's saying, when you look for Jesus in the Bible, guess what will happen? You'll see him. When you read the Exodus, when you read the book of Psalms, when you read the prophets, when you read any book in the Bible, if you look for Jesus, you'll find him. 
but it also means if you don't look for them, you won't find them. And you're foolish. That's what Jesus says. Oh, foolish ones who read Scripture and don't see Jesus. Who memorize verses but don't see Jesus. Who think that the Bible is about something other than Jesus dying for our sins and bringing us back together with God. Foolish. Unbeliever. Faithless. Who thinks that the law was meant to tell you how to live. The law was to bring you to Christ. The Psalms were to bring you to Christ. The prophets were meant to bring you to Christ. Do you get to Christ when you read Scripture? Or do you just get a little bit of inspiration? Or maybe a how-to? When you read the book of Proverbs, is it just so you can make more money? Or get along with your neighbors? Foolish one. Look for Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you study the Scriptures diligently. Sounds good, doesn't it? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. They go to the Bible, but reject Jesus. True believers, followers of Christ, go to the Bible looking for Jesus and you find him. So this is practical. When you do your Bible reading, figure out how that passage talks about Jesus. Figure out how that road leads to Jesus. Spurgeon said, just as all roads lead to London, every passage leads to Jesus. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. These people weren't Bible scholars. They were just regular people walking down the road. They didn't have a horse to ride on. They didn't have a chariot. They're just walking. They're poor people. But he says, you can still know. If you look for Jesus, you'll find him. Stephanie Crowder said, clarity comes when Jesus speaks. You're confused what the Bible teaches, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to react. When Jesus speaks, clarity comes. So if you are confused, it's because you're not reading the Bible looking for Jesus. If you can't see Jesus, how do you follow him? But it's not just seeing Jesus, it's believing it. It's trusting it. So, so many of us are like, oh yeah, we know that passage, you know, he's supposed to step on the head of the snake and bruises heel. We, that's Jesus, oh, great. Slow of heart to believe. You saw it. You acknowledged it. Nothing happened. Are you putting your trust in Jesus? Are you saying, if I can get to Jesus, I'll be fine? Or, yeah, that's great. That's interesting. Oh, that's cool how you know, Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus. The Psalm 1's about, that's, that's interesting. No. Look at these people in this passage. They're depressed. They're sad. They have no hope. That's you. Now, you may not realize it, but until you find Jesus, you've got nothing. And if you're not depressed and sad and without hope, it's because you've deceived yourself. So if you can be without Jesus, without trusting and depending on Christ daily, and you're not upset, it's because Satan has deceived you. You're foolish. When you realize your true condition and you realize that what you do is not going to cut it, and that the people around you are not going to be there for you, then you get sad. And then you need Jesus. So Jesus did not reveal himself to them because they needed to see how much they had lost so they could then see what Jesus offers. Christian faith is looking for Jesus, seeing him, 
and trusting Him, putting your hope on Him, putting your weight on Him, so that when your friends and family betray you, it's okay. When your job doesn't work out, it's okay. When your body gives out on you, you weren't trusting those things anyway. But you see what has to happen before that? You have to be met by Jesus. You have to see Jesus. You have to read the Bible and study it and look for him. But even more than that, because of how hard-hearted we are and how slow to hear, we have to be confronted. Wouldn't it be great if we just read the Bible, we got it, and we believed? But that doesn't happen, does it? Look back over your week. How much were you looking for Jesus in the Scripture? And how much were you just watching TV? How much were you looking for Jesus in the Scripture? Or how much were you working? You see how it works? What do we need? We need someone to stand in front of us and say, hey, here's Jesus. So Jesus comes to them and says, you're the problem. He confronts them. You know that's what's happening right now? You may not like what I'm saying, but you're still listening. Because you have to be confronted to change. Change doesn't happen. It would be great if we all just changed on our own, but that's not how it works. These disciples would not have gone home and started reading the scripture and seen Jesus. He had to confront them. And so we need to be confronted. Specifically, confronted with the scripture as it points to Christ. Not by guilt, not by fear, not by just basic encouragement, but specifically, open the scripture, preach Jesus. If that doesn't happen, you'll walk on with nothing. So when you look for a church, if you're leaving, if you have left, we talk to people who have left, they're looking for churches, what do you look for? Someone who will open the scripture and confront you with Jesus. Spurgeon said, don't go where it is all fine music and grand talk and beautiful architecture. These things will neither fill anybody's stomach nor feed his soul. Go where the gospel is preached, the gospel that really feeds your soul, and go often. All those things are great, but they don't get you through. You need someone to open the scripture and confront you with Jesus, and you need it often. So when we look for a church and we consider what kind of church we have, do we get confronted with the Bible on a regular basis? In other words, do we trust Jesus or do we trust something else? Are we trusting Jesus or are we trusting a program, abilities, new innovations? Or do we think that what's happening right now is enough? That's hard to hear sometimes because we hear other churches, we go to other places and we feel different. And we're like, I want that feeling. But look what the disciples said, that feeling passes. What do you have left? The word of God endures. Jesus Christ is the same. Everything else goes away. So what we need from a church, what we need from a preacher, what we need from each other is open the scripture and preach Christ. And then what will happen? Look what they said. They drew near the village. He was gone. He he shows that he's Jesus. They're like, oh my goodness, it was Jesus the whole time. And they said, then their eyes were open and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us. What's that mean? Their heart burned within them. What was happening? Was it some new thing? No, they already knew the scripture. 
They didn't know it was Jesus. What was happening was what we learned later, that the Holy Spirit takes the word and drives it home. You see, Jesus himself needed the Holy Spirit to convict them. And if Jesus and the Holy Spirit work together, how can we live without him? Spirit conviction. See, there's some objective truth in the Bible, isn't there? Objectively, Jesus died on the cross. You don't have to believe it. It happened. Then he rose from the grave. That happened too. But that hasn't happened to us yet. You see what happened to these disciples? They knew all the facts. They recite them back to Jesus. Jesus was a great man, approved by God. He died on the cross. The tomb is empty. What was wrong, though? What was missing? They didn't believe it. Their hearts didn't accept it. The subjective part. You see, you can't just sign your name to this. It has to be inside of you. There has to be a change inside of you, and that only comes through the Spirit. The Spirit conviction, when something you cannot explain, takes the words that you know and changes you. Without that, there's no change. Here's some examples from history. Blaise Pascal, a famous mathematician, scientist. In 1654, he was reading scripture, and something changed. He was not a Christian. Then from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, he wrote on a piece of paper that he carried with him the rest of his life. Fire, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and not of the philosopher and the savants, certitude. Joy, peace. He's the only, he is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. May I not forget your words. What is that? He changed on the inside. His heart burned. He'd had the Bible, but something changed inwardly. That's the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther King did the same thing. One night he was threatened with death. He went and he prayed trying to find answers for the fear and for the evil in the world around him as they, they said they were going to kill him. He said, I pulled back on the theology and the philosophy that I just studied in the universities, trying to give philosophical and theological reasons for the existence and reality of sin and evil. But the answer didn't quite come. The truth and the objective stuff and the things he'd learned about philosophy and how the world worked wasn't enough, was it? It was all external. Something said to me, you can't call on your dad now. His dad was a famous preacher. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You've got to call on that something and that person that your daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. His heart burned within him. And he said, I'll tell you, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sin break, sin's breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Where did Jesus say that to him? Did Jesus meet him? Not in person. But the word preached confronted Martin Luther King and his heart burned within him. And he said, there's the answer. Not the philosophy, not the education, not the learning, not the people, but an inward change from the Spirit. Has that happened to you? Because if it hasn't, you don't know Jesus. Jesus is hidden from you. 
until you read the word and something inside of you says, this is true, this is the only thing I know to be true, you're outside. You're cut off. Until the Holy Spirit convicts us, we have no hope. But when he does, everything changes. Look at these disciples. Their eyes are opened and they respond. Jesus gives an invitation. Look how he gives the invitation. He says, do you believe it's true? He goes as if he was going to walk on past. He said, I've told you the truth. Now I'm going to leave. And he waits. And what happens? They say, no, don't leave. Stay with us. God doesn't make you believe. He doesn't force you to respond. He says, this is true. You feel the truth inside of you. Will you respond? And they said, please stay with us. You see, it's not just that Jesus comes to us. It's not just that the word reveals to us what's true. We have to respond to it. We have to say to Jesus, stay with us. Please don't go any further. And Jesus, every time, will say, okay. He won't force his way into your house, but he'll come in every time you invite him. He doesn't force his way into our heart, but when we respond, he always comes in. Look at the response. Jesus does not force his way in. He invites. They invite him in. True conversion changes you. When these disciples saw Jesus and became Christians, they didn't believe in the resurrection before. Now they do. They're different. They break bread with Jesus, and then what do they do? They take a three-mile hike in the dark back to where the other people are who believe in Jesus. Show me a Christian who doesn't want to be with other Christians, and that's not a Christian. These disciples, after having been changed by Christ, want to go find other people who've seen Christ. They immediately head back to fellowship with Christians. Not because the Christians were any good. Remember these Christians? They're the ones who didn't believe either. They weren't going to give them any new information, but they also wanted to see Christ. The mark of a Christian that we can see is their desire to be with other believers. They returned to Jerusalem saying, the Lord is risen. They gathered with them to make known what had happened. True conversion produces desire. You want to see Jesus? Read the Bible and hang out with other Christians. Listen to preaching and be with other Christians. That's how it happened here. That's how it happens for us. Marshall says, in the reading of the scriptures and in the breaking of bread, the risen Lord will continue to be present, though unseen. Does Jesus feel far away from you? Maybe it's because you're far away from other Christians. Maybe it's because you're far away from where he can be seen. Do you feel like Christianity doesn't have much effect on you? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you act like a Christian, but you're not. This is the time where you say, this is true, I want it. Jesus, I've got nothing. Please come in. And he will. But if not, he'll walk past. Ask yourself, do you want Jesus in your life? Do you want to be around other Christians? Is this all that you have to hold on to? Then you're a Christian. But if it's just a part of your life, if it's just nice when it works, you're not a disciple of Christ. 
So right now, listen to Jesus, look at Jesus, and invite Jesus in. Let's pray.